What a pleasure to be with you here uh, in this beautiful facility. This is my first time here to to see the ministry of, of this uh, wonderful church. And uh, Scott, you were very kind to have me. We uh, just pray that the Lord will use this time together, that we could all grow in our understanding of the grace and the mercy of God to give to us the gift of the Spirit. It's an amazing gift. And uh, what one that... Uh, Honestly, I don't, I don't think many, many Christian people understand the, uh, uh, the fullness of what it means that He has given to us the Spirit in, in this age, Pentecost on. So we're going to be unpacking this during this weekend with you. I hope you all have uh, handouts, do you? Uh, if you don't, raise your hand, and I'm sure someone in the back there can, can bring one to you. Anybody lacking it? There's just one up here, I see. Uh, so, anybody else? No? So, somebody's scurrying in the back here to get it for you, so that'll, that'll happen soon. Well, let's just pause for one moment and pray together as we begin. Father, as we begin this conference together, we do pray that Your Spirit, uh, who is the subject of our time together, would be at work to do what He wants to do most, and that is bring honor and glory to our Savior Jesus. We, we thank You for the, uh, the ministry of the Spirit in opening our eyes to behold the glory of Christ, uh, in, in transforming us into the likeness of Christ, in empowering us to bear witness to Christ, and in all these ways to, to just exalt and glorify Jesus. And we want to see better what He is here to do so we can enter into that in faith and in our own lives with, with greater intentionality. So, Lord, we commit the time to You, and thank You for these men and women who have gathered. May it be evident, Lord, that we have been in Your presence and that You have instructed us through Your Word. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen. All right, well, let me give you a little bit of introduction to what we're going to be doing this evening. The, the 20th century really did see a revival in uh, the study of the Holy Spirit. And of course, this came about largely because of the, the rise of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century. Uh, up until the 20th century, do you know how many books were devoted exclusively to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? As I count them, one. By, by uh, John Owen in 1689, uh, no, no surprise, John Owen would be the guy, right, who, who did that. But uh, you, you find there a treatment, a large treatment of the Spirit. It's not that other people didn't write about the Spirit, but especially in the early church, the, the preoccupation was the Spirit in a Trinitarian context as, it, as the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Very technical, very, very uh, difficult to comprehend, and really not uh, what you see in the Scriptures in terms of the ministry of the Spirit. Very little about that. But in the 20th century, with this huge emphasis on the, on the Spirit, uh, hundreds of books in the 20th century and, and beyond have been written on the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in one sense, we should thank uh, all things Pentecostal, all things charismatic uh, for, for in, in a sense, bringing back to the church our, our, an awareness of the Spirit. But on the other hand, in my judgment, something very sad happened in that whole movement. I mean, this is really apart from the question of whether spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts have continued or not, just apart from that altogether, the sadness to me is that the emphasis really in the Pentecostal movement and in all forms of charismatic movements as well is the emphasis was really on the Spirit Himself and what the Spirit does in terms of 
of remarkable gifting, uh, spectacular displays of spirit empowerment. Whereas, it's very clear that the Spirit does not want to be front and center stage. He does not want to be where I am right now in the spotlight. He wants to be behind the scenes, shining the spotlight on Jesus. I mean, the passage that Scott read just a moment ago, it couldn't be clearer, could it? When the Spirit comes, He will not speak on His own initiative. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. He will glorify me. So, indeed, uh, we we need to realize that the chief mark of a Spirit-filled person or a Spirit-filled community is what does that person or what does that community think of Jesus? Do, do Do they want to see Jesus exalted? Do they want to see His name lifted high? Is the Spirit working to help them see the glory of Christ and, and uh, be, be conformed more into the image of Jesus? So, indeed, great interest in the Spirit, and yet, in my judgment, off, off of the main subject that you find in the Bible, and, uh, and that's a problem. Um, second thing I want to say by way of introduction, this is at cap letter B there on your, on your outline, comment on method of our study. What I'm going to do is walk you through uh, a, a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit beginning in the Old Testament, and, uh, and, and the way I'm doing this is, uh, is different from what you would find in many treatments of the Spirit that are done by Reformed people. I consider myself Reformed, but I'm Reformed and also dispensational, or at least uh, more in that tradition. Uh, People who are Reformed and covenant in their theology, what they tend to do is see the Scriptures as flat. Old and New Testaments really are under one covenant of grace, and so you kind of have permission, as it were, to plunder the New Testament and bring it back to the Old Testament and say, you know, it's always been this way. But I think when you read the Bible from beginning to end, you realize in the progress of Revelation that there is, there's very clearly uh, an increase that happens in the ministry of the Spirit when you come to Christ and you come to Pentecost. Uh, I mean, tremendous things take place that were not true in the Old Testament. So I think it's better to read, uh, to, to, to study the doctrine of the Spirit, as it were, through the Bible. And, and, uh, and when you do that, you realize the gift of the Spirit to us now is a phenomenal gift that was not given to the people of God under the Old Covenant. But we in the New Covenant become the recipients of this gift of the Spirit. And so, rather than thinking it's always been this way, no, we realize it hasn't been this way. And God had purposes in saving the gift of the Spirit until uh, the time of the New Testament, until the time of the the New Covenant uh, that was inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. So, we're going to go that that route of looking at the Old Testament first tonight. We'll do that. Our second session, tomorrow night, will be focused on the the gift of the Spirit uh, in in the... uh, 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 in the life and ministry of Jesus, and then following that, we'll take a look also tomorrow night at the Spirit and His work in sanctification, and then on Sunday morning, the Spirit and His work in, in service, empowering Christian people for service. So, th- those are the four areas we'll look at, and I trust it will just be helpful to, to get the broader biblical view of this in mind. All right, well, let's, uh, let's proceed then. Roman numeral 2 
we move then to the actual work of the Spirit in the lives of people in the Old Testament. And if that's not clear to you from the heading, what I mean by that is when you look at the Old Testament, what do you see in terms of the Spirit's actual work? Let, let's, you know, let's look at all the passages. I mean, we're not going to look at all of them tonight, but I have done that. Uh, you look at all the passages that refer to the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, and what kinds of conclusions can you draw from that? Well, the first thing to notice, something very interesting, and that is the actual references to the Spirit in the Old Testament as opposed to the New. Uh, in the Old Testament, the main word that's used for the, the Spirit of God is the word ruach. That's the Hebrew word, ruach. That uh, word can be translated uh, in, in different ways. It can be translated as breath or wind or spirit, uh, small s, that is human spirit, or spirit, capital S, referring to the Spirit of God. Uh, so so this, this word ruach is used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. And so when you go through and look at them, what you find out is of the, there, there are 388 times total that ruach is used in the Old Testament. Uh, of those 388, roughly 100 of those refer to the Spirit of God. So, so some reference to, to the Spirit who is God or the Holy Spirit, very few of them are in that category, uh, or the Spirit of God, uh, or the Spirit sent from God. So you find different ways, but you realize this is referring to the one we know of as the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Roughly a hundred passages in the Old Testament have, have the term ruach referring to the Spirit of God. Of those 100 uses of Ruach, referring to the Spirit of God, about 70 of them are, are in relation to what the Spirit is doing in the Old Testament time period itself, and the other 30 are references to what the Spirit will do in the age to come. So yes, those are, they're all in the Old Testament, but some of them are speaking of what the Spirit did with Saul or what the Spirit did with David or what the Spirit did with Moses. We'll look, at, we'll look at some of these in just a moment. What he actually did there in the Old Testament time itself. But the other 30, roughly 30, uh, are passages that refer to a day when I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, you know, like in Joel 2, passages like that. And, uh, and it's also interesting to see that the word Holy Spirit, that is that name, only occurs three times in the Old Testament. I have the references there for you. Uh, Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me, uh, David prays in Psalm 51, 11. And then two instances in Isaiah 63 where you find Holy Spirit. Now, compare that with, or actually contrast that with, uh, the number of usages of Spirit in the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament is about one-fourth as long as the Old Testament. So you've got, you know, three-quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament, one-fourth of it is the New Testament. But in that New Testament, you find the term pneuma, that, that's the New Testament word for Spirit, you find the term pneuma used 378 times. So almost as many times as ruach in the Old Testament, you find uh, of, the, of, uh, of pneuma. But of those 378 times, and by the way, it can be translated with the same range of meaning. It can refer to breath or wind or human spirit or the divine spirit, the spirit of God. Of those 378 times, 261 of them refer to the spirit of God. 
So you realize here's a, a really interesting number to, to, to compare, and that is in the Old Testament uh, of Ruach, roughly 100 refer to the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, 261 refer to the Spirit of God in a document that is one-fourth as long as the Old Testament. So something is pretty evident from that, right? There is an increased attention to the Spirit when you come to the New Testament, when you come to the Spirit upon Jesus and the Spirit being given to the church. All of a sudden, this becomes a much more prominent emphasis than was the case in the Old Testament. And then one other really interesting uh, statistic is, of those 261 uses of pneuma uh, that refers to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, 94 of them refer to the Holy Spirit. So again, compare Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, three times. Holy Spirit in the New Testament, 94 times. Isn't that amazing? And I can tell you right now why the Holy Spirit is called Holy Spirit so often. You know what? You want to know what the answer is? The Holy Spirit has come to make His people, God's people, holy. Isn't that it? I mean, again, you just realize the emphasis in the Pentecostal movements and, and, uh, and those other movements that were spawned from them, have just missed the mark on this, sadly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be critical in, in a… I'm, I'm, honestly, I, I, I blow it too. Okay, so, you know, we, we all make mistakes. But this is, this is a, a mistake of, of pretty big order, you know, that we didn't see that, in fact, the reason for the Spirit coming was to really bring us into faith you know, His work in regeneration and calling and so on, bring us to faith in Christ, and then reproduce within us the likeness of Christ so we become holy people. This is the whole point of it. I mean, the gifting, where the gifting is relevant, and it is, it's only relevant insofar as those gifts are used for what purpose? That we might help one another grow to become more like Christ. You see it? So, so really it's taking something secondary, the, the emphasis on gifting, spirit gifting, and making it primary, whereas, whereas rather the primary thing is the spirit coming to, to, to uh, really honor Christ in these ways in which He is most honored as the people that the Father has chosen to be His bride take on His character. And become a holy people. So, uh, you, you can see th this anticipated just by looking at the statistics of, of the usages of these terms. It's quite interesting that this is the case. All right. Well, let, let's take a look now at passages in the Old Testament that relate to the actual work of the Spirit during the Old Testament period. What do you see of these roughly 70 passages uh, where, where the Spirit is involved in empowering people, doing various things in people. And the first thing that I want us to, to observe is when you go through all those passages and look at what the Spirit does in the Old Testament, you find that the Spirit comes upon people that you can put into four different categories, four different categories of people, uh, prophets, craftsmen, civil rulers, And judges, uh, craftsmen, prophets, craftsmen, uh, judges, and civil rulers, those, those points that you see on your outline there. And uh, 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 
that is, all the people that are spoken of as directly having the Spirit come upon them fit into those categories. By the way, civil rulers, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, but what I, I'm using that category as one that would include both Saul and David, who were kings of Israel, right? And also Moses, who technically was not a king, but he was the ruler of the people. So civil ruler is a category that would include a Moses as well as a David uh, in that. Okay, well, let's start with, uh, with prophets, that the, the way in which the Lord came upon various prophets of Israel. And if you want to turn in, in your Bible to passages, you can. If you want to just listen to me uh, as, as I read these, and that would be easier, then uh, please, please feel free to do that. Second Chronicles 15, I think, gives a, a helpful uh, statement of the Spirit coming upon a prophet and how this uh, looks, how this works. 2 Chronicles 15, we read this, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Listen to me, Asa, uh, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, you will, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without the teaching of the priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and they sought Him, and He let them find Him. Okay, now what you see here is, it's not that it's that spectacular, but what you see here is a sample of what happens when the Spirit comes upon a prophet. To put it briefly, it's this. He speaks the word of the Lord, and He does so accurately, and He does so with courage. He speaks the word of the Lord accurately, and He does so with courage. So this is what the, what the Spirit does with a prophet is He ensures that what that prophet says is exactly what God wants said. I mean, we even know from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that if a prophet does not speak, the, the, uh, you know, if he claims to be speaking from the Lord and does not speak accurately, then this was not from the Lord, uh, we, we read in Deuteronomy 18. So indeed, the Spirit assures accuracy uh, in, in the proclamation of that word, and a boldness, a courage to speak what God wants spoken. And a number of these passages we could look at. Let me take you to Numbers 24. Numbers 24. This is an interesting one, and you'll see why when we get there. Numbers 24, at verse 1, I'll read from verse 1. Now, Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He did not go as the other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Who is this? Balaam. And he prophesied. He took up his discourse, and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Behor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. And on he goes. You know, it's so fascinating that in this section of the book of Numbers, Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to bring curses upon the people of Israel. And that's what his intended purpose was. But the Spirit came upon him so that some of the most glorious expressions of God's commitment to His people Israel, His promises to uphold them, to sustain them, 
uh, to, to save them, that they would be his people. The, these, these oracles of Balaam are just astonishingly uh, filled with God's mercy and kindness and his promise of redemption to Israel, and they come from this soothsayer, this uh, magician of sorts, Balaam, who is not a follower of Yahweh. But the Spirit worked in him to speak the words of the Lord, and he spoke them with accuracy and with boldness. Uh, and and by, by the way, this is the rest of the story, just in case you're wondering. After Balaam did this, and God uh, did not permit Balaam to speak, to speak the curses upon Israel that Balak had hired him to do, well, then Balaam came up with another idea. And that he told Balak, the king of Moab, and, you know, if, if Israel's here, you've got Ammon, Moab, and Edom on, on the right side of the, uh, the Jordan River. And so, so Moab is just kind of central right there, right across from Israel. So uh, Balaam told uh, Balak, the king of Moab, send your women into the tribes of Israel, and, and the men will cohabit with them, which they did. And they'll bring their idols with them, so they'll become worshiper, worshipers of the gods of the Moabites. And sure enough, it worked. This is called in the Old Testament, Baal Peor, where, where, where they devoted themselves to the idolatry of the Moabites' gods. So that was Balaam. And here, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Balaam. Isn't that amazing? He was not a believer. He was not someone who put his faith and hope in Yahweh. And yet God used him as a prophet in this case to bring the word of the Lord. Now, let me just mention one other thing on the little list of passages that are there. 2 Kings 2 verse 15 is interesting where it says that the Holy Spirit rested upon Elisha. And I think the, the implication there is I'll make, I'll make a case for this more in a bit. The implication there is that in all likelihood, this was a prophet who functioned as a prophet the whole of his life until he died. And therefore, when the Spirit came upon him, the Spirit would not leave him. I'm pretty certain the Spirit left Balaam. I mean, we don't read that. But I mean, really, this unbelieving uh, soothsayer, the Spirit is going to be upon him for the rest of his life? I don't think so. Uh, I think implicit in that is the Spirit came upon him for that purpose to empower him to speak that prophecy accurately and then would leave. But here we read of Elisha, the Spirit came upon him in this way in which he rests upon him, indicating, I think, that it would be for, for the fullness of his life and ministry. Okay, so Spirit, the Spirit coming upon prophets... You can look at these other passages later if you like, uh, but, but the, the point basically is the same with all of them. He comes upon them to empower them to speak accurately and to speak with boldness what God has for them to say. Craftsmen, this is an interesting category. It's pretty small, uh, pretty small. Not many in the Old Testament fit into this. The most prominent one is Bezalel. That's recorded in Exodus chapter 31. If you want to turn there or just listen... Uh, let me read the first part of Exodus 31. The chapter begins, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. There it is. So here is the Spirit coming upon Bezalel. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic design for the work of gold and silver and bronze 
and in the cutting of stones for the settings, in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahismiak, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill. So probably that phrase, all who are skillful, I have put skill, is another way of saying, I put my spirit upon them also. So these others who work with, with, with Bezalel, Aholiab and others, they also will have the spirit upon them. For what purpose? To build the tabernacle. And, and God, God was very particular about how that per- tabernacle was to be built. Later with the temple, same thing, very particular. And so he empowered the craftsmen to be able to do their work exactly rightly. I mean, it's just, you know, the precision that was required, the, the, ki- the kinds of materials that would be used, how they would work with them, how they would cut them, how, how they would put them together. It had to be done just right. So the Spirit of God came upon these people. Notice they were already skilled, but I bet as they were working, they even marveled at, the, at the, the quality of their own work. Wow, I've never done it this good before. I am quite sure they would have said to themselves. Uh, now, would the Spirit have stayed upon Bezalel the rest of his life? I'm doubtful. I'll tell you one thing. If, if the Spirit did, and he did perfect work of his craftsman, he would be the most popular guy to go to in all of Israel to do, to do your bathroom remodel, right? I mean, you want Bezalel to do it. Uh, wow, what incredible work he would do. But I, I don't think so. I think, again, it stands to reason that the Spirit comes upon him for this purpose, this purpose being to have the skill necessary to build the tabernacle. Same thing was true of the temple. And, and when the, the job is done, as it were, uh, the Spirit would leave. I think that would make the most sense of it. Though we're not, I, I just want to be clear with you, we're not told that. But in terms of putting it together, making sense of it, I think that's what we would understand. There are a couple other places where craftsmen are, are in view. David, in terms of the construction of the temple, of course, which was not built until Solomon's day, and also Hiram, also in terms of the temple, but it's only implicit in that particular text. The one that is the most explicit is the one we just looked at here in terms of Bezalel. Okay, going on to Judges, capital letter, or small letter C, Judges. Here you find in the book of Judges uh, a number of times when the Spirit comes upon one of the judges. Not all of the judges are mentioned to have the Spirit come upon them, but these are Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. You read of the Spirit of God coming upon them. And again, you find there's there's a pretty clear reason why. Look with me at Judges 3, verse 10. Judges 3, verse 10. I'll uh, read from verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rathashim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over him. Then Then he... The land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
So again, when you look at these passages, you can see this with Gideon. You certainly see this with Samson, you know, the, the, the legendary stories that are told of Samson in the book of Judges. Uh, you see the same thing basically true, and that is the people of Israel during this time period would stray from the Lord, and the Lord would rebuke them, discipline them, and then they would cry out for mercy, and God in His mercy would give to them a judge whom He would fill with the Spirit and make this judge bold and courageous to stand up against the Philistines and, and the enemies of Israel uh, and, and by, by which he would bring peace to the land again for a time period, followed by Israel's disobedience, rebellion. They would turn from the Lord. Uh, God would discipline them as, as he would use those other nations to bring harm to them, come in and, and wipe out uh, portions of their cities and so on. They would cry to the Lord for mercy. He would forgive them. And what would God do? Raise up a judge who, who would then bring, uh, uh, upon whom he would put his spirit, and then that judge would be used to, to bring peace to the land again for a period of time. And part of the book of Judges, of course, was setting up the need for a king, right? We need a king who isn't a, a, uh, a judge who comes and goes, but, but a line of kings that could be solid in terms of representing the people of Israel and leading them. But uh, you find this through the book of Judges. So again, when you ask the question, why did the Spirit come upon Othniel or Gideon or, or, or Samson? Why, why did He do this? The answer is pretty clear, and that is He empowered them to have courage and boldness and wisdom uh, and, and, and an ability to amass the people together right, to, to lead them in a way in which they would stand up against the enemies of Israel and uh, bring, bring peace then to the land for a time. So again, you're putting, I hope you're putting together kind of a picture here of, of what the Spirit does when He comes upon people. It's pretty functional, isn't it, right? There, there's a task that needs to be done. Uh, we, we need to speak the Word of the Lord accurately and to do it with boldness. We, we need to build something and do it just right, uh, we, we need to have courage to stand up against the enemies of Israel. And so God gives the Spirit to empower some task to be done, something that needs supernatural enablement. He provides that supernatural enablement by the Spirit, and He brings it to pass. Well, the last category of those upon whom the Spirit comes in the Old Testament are civil rulers. And this is really interesting. I saved this for the last because I think it's the most instructive uh, for our purposes. Uh, Moses is a great example, of course, of one who had the Spirit upon him. And he, he was, of course, called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and, and then uh, through, through the, the wilderness for those years. You know, they refused to go into the land earlier when, when the, um, the, the, the scouts went out, you know, to scout out the land, and they came back and 10 of them said, oh, we can't do this. Only two, two of them said, we can, but they followed the, the word of the 10, and they didn't go, so they wandered in the wilderness for these 40 years, and Moses had responsibility for them for this whole time. Well, there is a point when Moses was just about to his wit's end. I mean, how many people are we talking about? that Moses had responsibility for. I mean, the most conservative estimate would be a million people. That's the most conservative one. I mean, I think of Louisville, Kentucky, where we live, what they call Kentuckiana. 
I've always thought that's better than Indiyucky. That would be the other one you could have had, you know, because it's Indiana and Kentucky. But the, the larger area of Kentuckiana is about a million people. Uh, or how, what is Orlando? Is that, is that about a million? And I know, but I know Daytona's not a million. <laughs> Thanks, Jody. A lot of people. You know, but when, when you count with, with the, you know, the numbers of people that we can see in the Bible and add to that, wives and children, I mean, you're, it's, it's probably a couple million uh, that Moses had responsibility for. Well, there was this time in Numbers 11 when Moses was just really at his wit's end. Um, look with me at verse 10, Numbers 11, verse 10. Now, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families I don't know how literalistically to take this next phrase. Each man at the doorway of his tent. I mean, maybe it wasn't every single person, but, you know, that's, maybe that's the kind of thing we would say after a Sunday morning, you know, uh, you know how, how many people were there uh, uh, from, from uh, someplace? Oh, every, everybody came, you know, uh, were, were there. I, you know, but maybe it wasn't every single person, but basically so. Each man at the doorway of his tent was complaining and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant that is on me, Moses? Why have I not found favor in your sight? And you've laid the burden of all this people on me. Was it I who conceived all this people? This is Moses to God. Quite an, uh, uh, an interesting relationship he had with him, right? Pretty honest, right? Was it I who conceived of this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep uh, before me saying, give us meat to eat. I alone am not able to carry all the, the burden of these people. It has become too burdensome for me. So, <laughs> verse 15, if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. Scott, have you ever been that low? I have, oh, don't answer that. I have not. I have not been that low. If, if you love me, kill me. Uh, if you're going to deal with me this way, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. So here's the deal. They've had manna, 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 no meat. You know, I'm sympathetic to this. I, I have to tell you, I am. And, you know, they're just crave, craving some meat to eat, but they are complaining endlessly, and, and, and Moses can't do anything about it. And, and the burden of all of this is so weighty. So here's what God says. Of course, he does end up giving the meat. But before that, he wants to deal with the issue of Moses' own leadership of the people. So, verse 16, we read this. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, of their own officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and, and let them take their stand there with you. By the way, tent of meeting was outside of the camp. This was a place like, like out, out in, the, in, in the pasture beyond the church building. You know, Outside of the camp is where the tent of meeting was set up. So bring them out there. Verse 17, I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. So here's God's solution 
to this problem is distributing the responsibility of leadership, right? Now, now to 70, so we go from 1 to 71 in an instant. Pretty good. Pretty good increase. Uh, and, uh, and, and what does God do to empower them to be able to lead in the way Moses has been leading? Well, they need the Spirit. Moses has had the Spirit. Uh, and so they too need the Spirit in order to function as the leaders of the people, to, to handle disputes that would take place and to give wise counsel and so on. They, they needed the Spirit in order to function in those ways. So I will take the Spirit, God says, who is upon you, Moses, and distribute the Spirit to the 70 also. Now, just think with me for a moment. That means how many people in all of Israel had the Spirit upon him at the beginning of, of Numbers 11? One person, Moses. And then, of course, when he, when he gathers these 70 elders from the people, well, it's distributed to 70, but not more. Just those 71 people have the Spirit of, of the Lord upon them. Now, notice with me how this is fulfilled. I'll skip down a bit. Pick up with me at verse 24. Verse 24, So Moses went out, and he told the people the words of the Lord, also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. So they went out to the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Isn't that interesting? Now, why, why do you suppose that they prophesied? I mean, it's not, it's not that they were prophets because, the, because they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So the point was not to give the Spirit to them so that they would be prophets. No, they're not. They're, they're leaders for the people. They're not prophets. So why, why do they prophesy? Just to give evidence that the Spirit had come upon them. So it was, it was an empirical evidence that, in fact, the Spirit came upon them. And, but it wasn't for the purpose of anything that would be ongoing in their lives. It just happened right then, that one time, so that, so, so that they would know that, in fact, those 70 had the Spirit. Now, keep reading. It gets more interesting. Verse 26, but two men had remained in the camp. Uh-oh, these naughty boys. You know, these were two of the 70 who did not go out to the tent. They stayed in the camp with the people. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. I've always wondered if they were twins. You know, doesn't that kind of sound like names you'd give to twins? I don't know, but anyway, Eldad and Medad. And, they, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. So, they were, they were two of the 70, uh, but they stayed in the camp with the people. And notice this, and they prophesied where? In the camp. Where is Moses when this happens? Out of the tent. Where, where are the other 68? Out of the tent. What's the problem with these two staying in the camp? They receive the Spirit. They prophesy. What, what's, what's the problem going to be with that? Ah, where's Moses? Have these replaced Moses, right? Are these our new spiritual leaders? Right? Okay, so keep reading with me. So, a young man ran and told Moses, and he said, horror of horrors. That's my, uh, you know, par paraphrastic translation of verse 27. Horror of horrors. Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. I mean, this is terrible. 
Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Right? So what they are worried about is Moses' authority, Moses' standing. They don't want anything to happen that would somehow undermine the people's recognition that Moses is their leader. Now, granted, others have joined him in this, but he still stands as the leader of the people, and they don't want anything to undermine that. Okay, but these two men, Eldad and Medad, stayed in the camp, received the Spirit, they prophesy, and they worry that people will think, oh, Moses is God now, and we follow these two. And, and so they, they're encouraging Moses, you know, go back and tell them, tell them the truth about this. Restrain them from doing this. Now, here is Moses' perspective Oh, my land. Look at this, verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Do you know what that is? A tiny little glimpse of Pentecost. Acts 2, right? I mean, Moses can tell, even though... The Spirit has not come upon Moses, even Moses. The Spirit did not come upon Moses in the way the Spirit would come upon people in the New Covenant at Pentecost and beyond. That is, for this internal work of transformation and all the rest. Moses understood the benefits that the Spirit would bring in giving him wisdom, in helping him to discern how to adjudicate matters and how to counsel and so on. The Spirit had worked in him to help him to become an effective leader of the people. And he knew the benefits of the Spirit upon him. Knowing those benefits, Moses, rather than thinking, oh, we jealously need to guard this and keep it just with, with me or just with these few people, Moses is thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the people of God had the Spirit? And it's just a little foretaste of Pentecost. What is going to happen in that day? Okay, so Moses has the Spirit. Joshua is given the Spirit. You can read this in Numbers 27, uh, 18, and Deuteronomy 34, 9. But the next one I want to look with you at is Saul. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 11. 1 Samuel 11. And here you see Saul as the recipient of the Spirit. You remember Saul was not picked by God, right? You, you remember why he was picked? It's for a reason I never would have been picked, right? Saul, tall, Saul was tall and handsome, you know, and so they, they, they thought, I mean, it's still this way today. You never see a short politician who makes it out there, do you? If, if you're not six foot something or other, you're not going to make it. So, so people have this, you know, this horizontal viewpoint of, of people's qualities, and, and they look at their height for one thing. So Saul is tall. You know, David, by the way, was very short, uh, that always encourages me. But anyway, and that, that was God's pick. <coughs> so the people picked Saul, and he, he became a king, the first king of Israel. And we read in verse, look, look with me at verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what's the matter with the people that they, that they weep? And so they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh, that, that the, the enemies of Israel were about to, to destroy them. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel, 
by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So here again, <coughs> excuse me. Why, why does the Spirit of God come upon Saul at this point? To give him boldness and courage to stand up as a leader for the people and, and, and call them together to join him in fighting against the enemies of Israel. So, again, you realize it's a pretty functional purpose, isn't it? Uh, because he's king, the Spirit comes upon him as king in order to enable him to do the things that he is called to do as king. Now, with Saul, we realize he failed before God as king. Do you remember some of the things he did that God viewed as greatly dishonoring? Do you remember? One of them was... God told him to destroy uh, th these people, you know, the Amalekites, and, and, and to, to kill all of their animals, uh, and, and to kill the king. And what did Saul do? Oh, the pious, the piety of disobedience. I saved the best to, to sacrifice to the Lord. It sounds so pious, doesn't it? It was just flagrant disobedience. That's what it was. So that's one thing he did, and he got called on that, right? The, 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 the obedience is better than sacrifice. That's just in the next couple chapters here. That's in chap, chapter 15. Has the Lord, verse 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Uh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. Here, here, what's the other thing he did? He attempted to function as a priest and offer sacrifices. He, he didn't wait for the priest to come. And, of course, the, the significance of that in the Old Testament as is that the line of the priests of Israel are from a different tribe than, than the line of the kings of Israel, right? The line of the priests are from the li line of what? Tribe of Levi. They come from Levi. Well, he's not a Levite. Well, it hasn't been established yet, but, but the line of the kings of Israel are going to come from the line of Judah. That's what David was. Now, Saul was not from the line of Judah. It's one of the reasons you know he could not have been the first of the kings of Israel that would lead to the Messiah. He was from the wrong tribe. He was from Benjamin, not from Judah. This was not God's pick. David was God's pick, not Saul. But nonetheless, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, and so he dishonored God by that action of, of sacrificing and not waiting for the priest to come. Okay, the effect of that, those two things in particular, uh, his failure to obey the Lord, his functioning as a priest when he was not from the, the line of, of Levi, those two things resulted in God taking the kingship from Saul and with that, taking the spirit from Saul. So look with me in chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now that's really sobering, isn't it? I mean, the judgment of God against Saul because of his flagrant disobedience and his disregard for God's ways. So, even though he is still formally king until he dies, he is not a king with God's blessing. And so God takes the spirit from him and, and then allows, uh, this is the way I understand this, an evil spirit from the Lord. It, it's kind of like this. 
Those demons out there, I mean, there, there are no doubt demons who would love right now nothing more than to afflict this congregation as we are listening here. And who is holding them back? God is. The, the sovereign, glorious God who is totally sovereign over anything that happens from the demonic realm. I mean, He holds them in His own uh, he holds their lives in His own hands moment by moment. He, he doesn't have to let them do anything, but He also uses them for purposes. And in this case, He lets one of those demons, an evil spirit from the Lord, terrorize Saul and get, gives permission for this demon to do what he's eager to do, what he wants to do. Uh, it, it, it reminds me, this is just a, a visual image that I have in my mind. I remember when we lived in Portland, Oregon, my morning run would go uh, around a corner of a house that had a chain-link fence around it, and there was a doghouse over here that faced this direction. As I came around the corner, at some point, the dog, which was a pit bull, yikes, uh, th this dog would see me because I was now in his line of sight, and the same thing happened every morning. This pit bull would get, get all upset and go rushing out, and his head would smash against the chain link fence. There was a, a significant, you know, dent in that fence where his head hit so many times, right? And I just, I just remember thinking to myself, all it would take is just let, let that gate go open, you know, and I'm toast. There's no way I could survive this pit bull. And, and so th this is what, de you know, so God holds them back. He's got his chain link fences out there, you know, that keeps them back. And all he has to do is open the gate. And, and they, they will do what they want to do. So I think that's what's happening here. So it really is both the positive power of the Spirit is taken from Saul and God's judgment comes upon him. And by the way, that phrase, an evil spirit from the Lord, is mentioned two or three times after this in the book of 1 Samuel. So uh, Saul then is no longer the king. Who does God establish as king of Israel? The first real king, the one who will lead to the line of Jesus. David, right? Well, that happens, just look in the previous verses, uh, verses 12 and 13. You know, uh, Samuel had gone to David's father, Jesse, and had asked him to, to uh, ha bring his sons to him, and he had done that. He brought all of the sons of Jesse to him, and, Je and, and finally, Samuel said, do you have any more? And he said, well, just David, you know, the, the, the runt of the family, you know, he's out there with the sheep. Well, bring him. So he brought him. Uh, verse 12, so, so he sent and brought David in. Now, he was ruddy with, a be with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Rabbah. So indeed, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. The very next verse, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. So now David has the Spirit. But Saul is still king formally until he dies. So what happens? Do you remember? In the, in, in the derision that Saul experienced, he became paranoid over David, fearful that David was going to harm him or take the throne from him. And so he pursued David. You know, many of the Psalms in the Psalter that, that speak of the enemy is after me and I, 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 I'm close to death and, and uh, I, I'm in great distress, these are Psalms of David as he is fleeing from the increasingly deranged Saul.
So here is David fleeing from Saul regularly. David knows the, uh, the effect of the spirit being taken from Saul and, and, and an evil spirit from the Lord coming to him because he has experienced the fruit of it. He, he has seen it you know, as Saul has pursued him. Okay, now advance the tape forward. David becomes king, and God honors him, and, and God uh, multiplies his kingdom and does many, many great things to him. But then there came this time when kings were supposed to go out to war, and David stayed home, went to the rooftop of his palace, looked down and saw this beautiful woman bathing, called her to him. We know the story, don't we? And David committed in that a series of horrible sins before the Lord and before His people. He, he, he was very unfaithful in his sin against Bathsheba, against her, her husband, Uriah. I mean, Uriah the Hittite. I mean, the irony of this is thick. This Hittite, who isn't even himself a, a natural-born Jew, he's a proselyte to Judaism from another, another ethnic group, but he's more righteous than King David who will not go down and enjoy the pleasure of being with his wife when his men are out there fighting in battle. And so David arranges for his death to take place. Well, you know, in, in that sin that David did, I mean, when you compare the sin of Saul and the sin of David, my sense is the sin of David is greater than what Saul did. But the difference is David repented. Psalm 51, he repented of his sin and, and God accepted that repentance, and so the Spirit was not taken from him. But do you remember what David prays in Psalm 51, among other things? Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Here's my parenthesis addition to that. Like you did to Saul. He knows what happened to Saul. Okay, so it's really a graphic image, isn't it, of, uh, of the, the Spirit... Uh, upon David and how important that was for the role that he was doing. But it also highlights this. The Spirit's coming upon a person in the Old Testament is not permanent. It, it, it depends upon how long the task is. So, l- let me, let me look, at, look with you at these three characteristics of Spirit empowerment in the Old Testament. They are, number one, selective Goodness, I mean, count up the judges, the, the prophets, uh, the craftsmen, the, the, the civil rulers upon whom the Spirit of the Lord came. Counting the 70 in Numbers 11, it's barely over 100 people. It's amazing how few people explicitly, it is ex- explicitly stated that they have the Spirit. Second, the coming of the Spirit in the Old Testament is temporally conditioned. That is, the length, the duration of that has to do with how long the task is right? So, I take it for Bezalel, it was only for the building of the tabernacle. Uh, I, I take it for uh, the, the, the judges and the prophets while they were speaking the word of the Lord. Uh, and, and, uh, and certainly, we know for Saul with, that with certainty that the Spirit came upon him just for a time and then left. So, for the task and, and the accomplishing of that, the Spirit would come. So, t- temporally conditioned, another way you could put that would be task durational. That's another phrase, I think, that would work there. And then, the single most important one, this is the one that accounts for the other two, is the Spirit's coming was task-oriented. 
This is the key characteristic that accounts for the first two. Task-oriented. That is, the Spirit came upon them to fulfill some task, some function, some work that needed to be done. To, to speak the word of the Lord boldly and accurately. To, to judge with, with the courage. Uh, to build with care and skill. So, these, these things indicate the, the functional nature of the coming of the Spirit. Now, here, here is what is so interesting is when you compare that to what is said will happen in the latter days to what will happen when the Spirit comes. It will no longer be selective. We're going to look at a few passages here as we bring this to a close this evening. Uh, It will no longer be selective. I will pour out my Spirit on all the people of God, all mankind, your young men, your old men, your, your, your servants, and, you know, everyone will receive the Spirit, right? So, no longer selective, no longer task durational, right? Temporary. Oh, no. When the Spirit comes, He comes for good. In fact, do you know this? He comes upon our lives forever. We will have the Spirit upon us in heaven. That's why we will never sin in heaven. It's not because God flips the switch and we go on automatic pilot. It's because the Spirit is constantly at work in us in such a way that our deepest desire every moment will be to follow the Lord faithfully, to obey His will. This will be the Spirit's work within us. So that, that begins at the moment of our conversion and it lasts forever. And then the, the purpose of the Spirit's coming is not merely task-oriented, although there are tasks that are empowered in, in the new covenant as well. But it's not merely that. The, in fact, the main purpose of the Spirit's coming in the new covenant doesn't have to do with a task. It has to do with character. Character transformation, remaking us from the inside out so that we become like Christ, that we become holy people that our, our very characters are remade so that we take on the characteristics of God Himself. Okay, well, look with me in, in the last uh, moments that we have tonight at just a few passages that highlight the coming of the Spirit in the new covenant as articulated in the old covenant. That is, they're told us in the Old Testament, but they're fulfilled beginning at Pentecost in the New Testament. Isaiah 32 is a really beautiful statement of this. I only quoted for you there, though, the part that, that announces the Spirit's coming. But let me just back up a little bit and let you know how bleak things were leading up to these words. So, in Isaiah 32, at verse 9, you, you can look there or just listen to me. At verse 9, this is what the prophet says, "'Rise up, you women who are at ease,' And and hear my voice, give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended. The fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put on sackcloth. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Next word, until. That's where I begin quoting in the, in the handout. So here, here's the picture that the prophet is painting. 
the judgment of God. You, you people who are partying day and night, you know, you're complacent, you're at ease, you have no idea the judgment that is about to befall you. You have no idea how horrible it's going to be. You're not, you're not going to be drinking wine anymore. You'll be lucky, lucky to get a drink of water somewhere. It's going to be so barren, so dry. So this judgment is going to come, but oh, have you noticed this in the prophets, my friends? Have you noticed that God's final word to His people is not His word of upcoming judgment? That word is there a lot in the prophets, and they deserve every bit of it, as we do. And let's not be too hard on them. I mean, we're, we're in the same boat, aren't we, as, as people who, who don't follow Christ faithfully all the time. So, the the word of judgment is definitely there. But what's the final word that God wants His people to know? It's the word of restoration, of renewal, of bringing you back, of making you my people, working in you so that you become the holy people that I, that I called you to be. So here it is in, Psalm, in Isaiah 32. So the judgment is going to come upon you until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field is considered a forest. You get the idea there? I mean, goodness, the productivity is so great that it looks like you're walking through a forest as you go through those corn stalks and, 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 and the likes. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then the people will live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. So, so notice the description here involves, I mean, everything about their surroundings, the, the land that they live in is productive and at peace. There is righteousness in, in the... Uh, in, in civil affairs of the people, and their hearts have been changed. So God is going to do this comprehensive work. When will it happen? When the Spirit comes, He says. Then God will do this amazing work of transformation. Here's another text, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on a thirsty land. By, by the way, do you remember in the New Testament connections between water and spirit? Yeah? John 3, Nicodemus, you must be born of water and of the spirit. John 7, out of your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water, this Jesus spoke of the Spirit, right? So water and Spirit, you know, water giving life, life-giving power of water. Okay, back to the text. I will pour out water on a thirsty land, streams on a dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. Notice it's offspring, not you. Not you. You are going to go to judgment. You will be taken captive by the Babylonians. But I have not given up on the people of Israel. I will work to bring them back and, and make them my people. So I will pour out my, my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among glass, uh, I'm sorry, like among the grass like poplars by streams of water. 
This one will say, I am Yahweh's. And that one will call upon the name of Jacob. And another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, to Yahweh, and will name Israel's name with honor. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament did you see the people of God proud to be the people of God? Answer, not very often. A few little glimmers of it. You know, when the, the law of the Lord was rediscovered under Ezra? Yeah, for a short period. They were really excited to be the people of God. But what marked them mostly? They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. They, they wanted to worship their gods. They just wanted to fit in. They didn't want to be distinctive. You know, the, the people of Yahweh, they didn't want that. But the day is going to come, God says, when I will work in you so that your heart's longing will be to honor the Lord. You will be proud to be the people of God. Ezekiel 36. This, I, I put the whole thing here because it's just so amazing. So let me read through it and just make a few comments as we go. Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Stop. When he says, it is not for your sake, he doesn't mean it's not for your benefit. Everything he's about to describe is for their benefit. So what does he mean? It is not for your sake. He means it's not because you deserve it. You don't have this coming. You, 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 you haven't done anything to commend yourself to me. In fact, just the opposite. Keep reading. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Stop. Why are they in the other lands? Why are they in the other nations? Is this the missionary force from Old Testament Israel who's taking the gospel out to the nations? Oh, no. Oh, no. Why are they in the land? Judgment. They are in exile. God has judged them by, by enabling the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come and take them over and take them, back, take, take them into exile. And so when he says, I will bring you back into your own land, what does that signal? Judgment is over. Restoration is beginning. Okay, so I will bring you back to your own land. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Here it is again, water and spirit. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Isn't that a great image? A heart that is cold and hard and dead toward God. And I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive and pulsating and vibrant and warm toward God. I will put, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. I think I'll stop there. I won't read the rest of it. I think we, we see the main point of it here. So here is this promise uh, th through the prophet Ezekiel of a day that is coming 
when God will restore His people and they will truly be His people. They, they will from their heart because their hearts are changed. I take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I put my spirit within you. And so they will from their heart long to be the faithful and obedient people of God. When will that happen? When the Spirit comes upon the people of God. I do have a note there at the bottom of that section that, that says, notice the conceptual parallel with Jeremiah 31. That's the new covenant passage. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, declares the Lord. The, the parallel is this, that in Jeremiah 31, he says, I will put my law within you, right? Where had the law been in the old covenant? Tablet of stone, external. Where will the law be in the new covenant? Written on our hearts. Isn't that beautiful? Where is the Spirit in the Old Covenant? Well, I haven't showed you this yet, but there are three passages in the Bible that speak of the Spirit in the midst of the people. So again, the idea is external. Where will the Spirit be in the New Covenant? I will put my Spirit within you. This internalization. Where is the temple in the Old Testament? Out there. Where is the temple in the New Covenant? We're it. I mean, here, here we are as the temple of God where the Spirit dwells within. So this internalization work of the Spirit that will take place uh, as God remakes His people to be the people of God. How? By the work of the Spirit within. So I will write my law within you, Jeremiah 31. I will put my Spirit within you, Ezekiel 36, 27. And, and notice that... I mean, what you see there is what you see so many places in the Bible, and that is the close connection between Word and Spirit. The Spirit doesn't work apart from His Word. The Word has not worked correctly without the Spirit. They go together. So it's this beautiful blend that we see uh, in that text. Okay, last text here, Joel 2. One reason this text is so important is because, finish my sentence, one reason this text is so important is because Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 in his sermon. He says, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke, and then he quotes from this passage. So here's what it says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even upon male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into, into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered from on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So indeed, this day is coming when God will put His Spirit on all of those who name, New Testament, the name of Christ, who are truly the children of God, who, who come in faith, His, the Spirit will come upon them. Uh, and, and indeed, we have that assurance as those who are believers in Christ that every one of us has the Spirit. That was not true of the people of God in the Old Covenant. So part of the purpose of this lesson tonight is to make us realize how incredible it is that we're living on this side of Pentecost. We're living on this side of the cross where 
the, the gift of the Spirit has now been given to us. And, and uh, so tomorrow, tomorrow night, we're going to look first of all at how the Spirit worked in the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you haven't seen this yet, oh, I hope you can be here just because it, it is just amazing to behold. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell, tell you more. I won't go into it right now, uh, but I'll, I'll do it then. And uh, just to see some wonderful things about the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus, then how that work comes to us as we become believers in Christ and we become recipients of the Spirit to help us grow in sanctification and help, help empower us to serve one another. That's what we'll work on from this point on. Well, a, a, a pretty fast tour, right, uh, through the Old Testament of the work of the Spirit, anticipating His work as He comes in the New Covenant. And may God help us just to embrace His Word and be grateful for what He is doing uh, through the work of His Spirit within us. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity this evening uh, just to, to examine Your Word and see the riches and the beauty of what is here as we pay attention to what you tell us about your Spirit's work in the Old Testament, both in His actual work, but then the prophecy of what He will do when He comes. What a glorious uh, anticipation that, that builds as we await the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. Lord, go with each of us now as we go home to our various places. Give us good rest and a good day tomorrow, and may we uh, return tomorrow evening with, uh, with anticipation of more that you have for us from your word as it is illumined to our hearts by your spirit. We give you praise for this, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.